Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be on the air, and wherever you all live, uh, for some of you, it's already Friday, but I know where I'm at. Um, It's Thursday evening, and what do you know? Tomorrow it will be Friday. I do hope all of you have uh, been enjoying uh, watching the Winter Games. I know I have, Um, and it's good to have these Olympics um, in general because even in the um, worst of um, times in our world, uh, for about two weeks, um, people can come together and be unified and uh, participating in games that are meant to bring um, out the best in, um, in people. I'm not saying that we have to have an Olympics to do this kind of stuff, but it is just nice to know that there are, um, what do you call it, games that are uh, relevant where um, we can watch those whom have made uh, sacrifices in preparing for um what you call um, a moment of in their lifetime that um, that they will never forget. I mean, you know, being in the Olympics is one thing, but it's not one of those things that just happens overnight. There's uh, a lot of training, a lot of um, conditioning. There's all kinds of uh, preparation that goes into uh, making it to this uh, stage, uh, that of an Olympian's uh, stage at this time in their life. Um, but I think, you know, if there's anything that we um, as individuals do that uh, we can put our minds to and we're good at it, then uh, good things um, will continue to uh, come our way, not just short term, but uh, long term. Well, here we are again uh, discussing Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. When we were on the air last, um, we discussed uh, a good deal about Alexander Hamilton and he will certainly be uh, mentioned again in this podcast. Uh, but then again, even though the title may say Adams versus Jefferson, it it's definitely worth um, reminding ourselves that other individuals did play a part uh, leading up to this election and around the time that the election itself um, does happen. So we've already... Um, confirmed and have learned, rather, I should say, that John Adams is now our nation's um, second president. He has succeeded George Washington, John Adams having been Washington's vice president for eight years. Yes, there were those in the crowd whom were sobbing because they knew this would be the last time that George Washington would hold any um, elected office. And many of them were worried about the fact that, hey, will there be another George Washington Will there ever be someone who, um, who, if maybe if the individual is not 100% like Washington, but he bears um, qualities that are um, that are just like that of a George of George Washington himself? So there is a lot of unknowns uh, now uh, facing America as George Washington um, has retired from the presidency, and now John Adams is in play as the new uh, commander in chief. So our first leadoff question will be the following. Uh, What crisis did John Adams have on his plate just days after being sworn in? The the irony about this uh, crisis is that it it pertains to a treaty that was was, uh, executed a few years before Adams became president. And I believe we uh, discussed that uh, treaty. Was it the uh, Jay Treaty? Yes. 
So how does the Jay Treaty itself serve as a crisis for John Adams and his uh, administration? Well, the matter that pertains to the Jay Treaty, yes, it did open the doors to better modified relations between England and America, but um, England's uh, rival, being the nation that came to our side in the American Revolutionary War, is bitterly opposed to this treaty, being France. France um, renounces the treaty, it's another word for opposing it, and they discourage trade between, France discourages trade between both nations. In other words, they don't like the fact that England and America are trading with one another, but yet France has been left out of the equation. Okay, it's one thing to, uh, to want to discourage trade between uh, two nations whom you feel don't want to have anything to do with you. But in retaliation, um, the French chose instead to attack enemy vessels. Okay, do you think they attacked uh, British vessels? Yes. However, it, it would be fair to say that the French are now attacking American ships probably more so than the British. Why would they have attacked American ships? Well, for starters, what are American ships transporting? Um, various um, assortments of um, commercial goods. But it's not so much attacking um, the ships because of the goods, but the people on the ships, the sailors. And what do you think the French could do? And this will be um, something of a norm that will um, become even bigger as the 18th century comes to an end and the 19th century begins, there will be what's called impressment. I don't want to give it away, but for some of you who've been with me um, regularly, and this has been discussed in other podcast series about impressment, that's where uh, one side um, takes a hold of, an, of the enemy's um, crew and basically uh, forces them against their own will to... Um, to join the rank of the opposition whom has seized their uh, vessels. And one uh, method for this impressment, or one reason for it, is because one side claims that they are short on men because their men have deserted, and in order to fill those ranks, they need to impress the opposition by forcing them against their own will upon means of uh, seizure, or what I would say an unreasonable search and seizure to capture the men and take them over to the enemy side. It's a complicated matter, but during the late 18th century and into the early 19th century, impressment was often the means to replace a shortage of men on uh, one side of, of a conflict. So yes, the French are not only attacking American ships that are transporting commercial goods along the high waters being the Atlantic Ocean, but they are probably starting to engage in some form of impressment against American uh, sailors and Navy men. Every one of Adams's cabinet members were Federalists, except one being Charles Lee of Virginia. This is not the same Charles Lee who um, turned out to be a disgrace from the American Revolutionary War whom served under uh, General George Washington. This is another Charles Lee uh, who is, yes, linked to that famous Lee family of Virginia. But Charles Lee uh, served as Attorney General 
um, early on in Adams's uh, administration, but he was the only one that was not a Federalist. And as we have established already before, and I will uh, mention it again, uh, the Federalist cabinet members all had close ties to who? Did they have close ties to John Adams? No. They have close ties to Alexander Hamilton. I don't know if I like that. Hamilton's one of those men, I, I, and I might mention it even somewhere down the road again in this podcast, but Hamilton's one of those men that can be best described as a love-hate relationship. You like him for his um, political um, genius with regards to um, trying to uh, compose, um, what do you call it, a uh, political, not a, so much a political system, but compose a financial uh, system that would rival the modern-day Federal Reserve system. But when it comes to um, personal uh, gains, when it comes to being in the spotlight, Hamilton's one of those men that doesn't seem to know where his boundaries are. He just has to be there all the time. But if I tell you all any more right now at this moment, there may not be a need to mention anything else about Hamilton. So let's find out about some of these uh, cabinet members whom are a part of Ab Adams's administration because it's one thing to say that the uh, cabinet members were not close to Adams, but we need to find out just a bit of interesting um, information about uh, three men in particular. Their names are Oliver Wolcott, uh, James McHenry, and Timothy Pickering. Being that they were members of Adams's administration whom were holdovers from Washington's final years in office. Let's start off with Oliver Wolcott. He is the grandson of a Connecticut colonial governor, and he is the son to a signer of the Declaration of Independence, being Mr. Oliver Wolcott Sr. Uh, there is a place in Connecticut called Wolcott, Connecticut, spelled W-O-L-C-O-T-T, -T, named after the Wolcott family. There is a town in New York State, uh, not far, just on the outskirts of Buffalo, named Wolcott, New York. So um, it's interesting enough uh, that Oliver Wolcott Sr., for those of you who were with me um, when we discussed uh, signing their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, that the elder Wolcott, uh, Oliver Sr., he uh, witnessed at Bowling Green Park uh, shortly after the Declaration of Independence had been approved by the delegates in Philadelphia this was about July 9th of 1776. Uh, George Washington read, well, Washington was in attendance along with other members of the Continental Army, but um, there was a reading of the uh, Declaration of Independence, and it had inspired so many um, people in attendance, not just so much the document, but it inspired others to do the following, to disassemble a statue of King George III. Oliver Wolcott watched all this, and yet there was there was so much of the statue left over that at that at that moment he had a brilliant idea use what was left of the statue and it will be transported back to Connecticut in wagons and we will melt the statue what's left of the statue into bullets uh, or musket balls 
for the Continental Army to use down the road in future battles. So basically, Oliver Wolcott was referred to Oliver Wolcott Sr. was referred to as the signer who melted King George's heart. King George III's heart, that is. He didn't melt it out of love for King George. He melted his heart to say, hey, I'm going to use what's left of your statue, and it's going to be used against you in the form of musket balls where the Continental Army troops can uh, fire upon your soldiers, the king's army. So, yes, that's where um, Oliver Wolcott Jr. has uh, his um, family uh, connection. What I found interesting to be about Oliver Wolcott Jr. is that he practiced law during the Revolutionary War to serving in public life on the state level. Uh, prior to 1789, he served as Connecticut's uh, comptroller. Does anybody know what a comptroller is? It's a high-level office, a high-level officer whom oversees an assortment of accounting tasks to financial reporting tasks of organizations. Oliver Wolcott uh, Jr. became the auditor under Treasury Secretary Hamilton, and by 1795, he succeeded Hamilton in that position. So it was not long after the Whiskey Rebellion of, of 1794 ended did Alexander Hamilton step down, and his successor was none other than Mr. Oliver Wolcott uh, Jr. James McHenry, um, he's he's a very interesting fellow. Uh, he did sign the United States Constitution. He was an immigrant from uh, Ireland. He served as the nation's uh, Secretary of War since 1795. His background was in medicine, served as a uh, physician, but by the time the uh, American Revolutionary War breaks out, he joined the Continental Army as a surgeon, and by 1778, he had joined Washington's staff, which included meeting Alexander Hamilton. So, hey, you can't go wrong with these uh, connections. I mean, they are um, vital, to say the least, because you never know where they will result uh, down the road. And what about Timothy Pickering? He was a Secretary of State whom hailed from the New England region. He was a Harvard graduate, practiced law, and fought in the Revolutionary War. And come 1777, he was involved. He joined Washington's staff. So hey, for these men to know Washington, to know Hamilton, yeah, the connections do pay off. Well, did John Adams want resolution to the French crisis? Yes, he did. He proposed sending a bipartisan group to Paris. Okay, when I mean by bipartisan here, it's not just so much that it's both sides, but in this case, he wanted men from both political parties, Federalists and what we would call Jeffersonian Republicans, to be a part of this mission. But who is against this? Timothy Pickering? James McHenry, Oliver Wolcott. They all opposed Adams's option. Well, if that's not bad enough, <laughs> all of these uh, men decided to uh, go behind Adams's back and share everything with Alexander Hamilton. And the irony to it is that John Adams himself decided to change... Um, 
gears on this matter. He agreed to hold a special session of Congress regarding the um, existing uh, conflict with France. Okay, that's a nice modification right there. You would have thought that maybe that would have made Oliver Wolcott, James McHenry, and Timothy Pickering um, a little bit happier. But no, they decided that, hey, that still wasn't enough. And so that's when they decided to go behind John Adams' back to share everything with Alexander Hamilton, who's not even a part of this administration. This is, this is going to lead to what we call a pattern of bad conduct starting to evolve. You know, it's one thing to share something with someone, but at the same time, when I think of someone like Alexander Hamilton, yes, who does have a lot of smarts, I also think of Alexander Hamilton as someone whom can't be considered trustworthy. But I think it's fair to say that even in, in the early days of, our, um, of America's Republic, there were uh, men on both sides of the political spectrum who... Um, probably were not considered to be trustworthy on everything. However, um, Alexander Hamilton does something that I, I think is uh, smart. He requests an immediate upgrade of the military. Well, we have to keep in mind that, remember, Alexander Hamilton is an officer. I mean, he was an officer in the American Revolutionary War, so I could see where he is very passionate about the well-being of the military. And come time of the special congressional session regarding France, John Adams did approve Hamilton's suggestions regarding a military upgrade. Now, the the members who went to that Adams proposed. Um, go to France where Mr. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina and he became ambassador to France right before Washington's presidency ended so he was already um, a short what we call a um, a shore in then there was Mr. John Marshall who has not become as of just yet the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court but John Marshall of Virginia and Mr. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts those are the men that Adams wants to go. But there are members in Congress who don't like the fact that Adams has selected these men. It seems like that no matter what John Adams is doing, is it fair to say, and it's not so much the pattern of bad conduct by men like um, Oliver Wolcott, James McHenry, and Timothy Pickering, is it fair to say that um, that there are just plain down members of Adams's party in Congress whom are not satisfied with anything that he has suggested or proposed. Yeah, it is fair to say that they just are not satisfied. Well, did Thomas Jefferson still have concerns about Hamilton regarding his personal presence? I believe that's a no-brainer, but I just thought I'd ask the question just in case any of you all weren't 100% sure still, but the answer is yes. Thomas Jefferson has plenty of concerns about Alexander Hamilton's, not just Hamilton as a person, but his personal presence in politics. Jefferson began to see Hamilton as someone whom uh, represented the exact opposite to what the American Revolution itself had achieved. Well, there were many things that the American Revolutionary War and just the Revolu American Revolution movement had achieved but what was one of uh, General Washington's big concerns? 
and, and many others, but if you ask me what was one of Washington's big concerns, well, he was fighting a war to keep um, what he called rulers of nobility from no longer governing people being the subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. So in other words, one of the biggest um, accomplishments behind the American Revolutionary War was that the Continental Army was able to free the American people of, of monarchs. America had finally gotten rid of monarch rulers whom controlled the masses, meaning uh, scores of, um, what do you call it, people, people who had really no freedoms, no freedoms to enjoy life by in general. So in other words, if you weren't loyal to the crown, the crown's going to view you with all kinds of uh, contempt and disdain. And of course, if you were a loyalist and your loyalties were to king and country, then yes, you would uh, be still valued upon as a uh, worthy subject of his majesty, the king. Hamilton, in Jefferson's eyes, really was seen as a manipulator whom went about stabbing John Adams in the back with the help from the cabinet. So it does uh, concern Thomas Jefferson terribly. You know, I am kind of wondered, you know, how come Jefferson didn't approach Adams about this? Or how come Jefferson didn't try to confront one of the cabinet members? You know, it's easier said than done. Uh, we do have to be reminded of the fact that Jefferson is not one who's big on conflict. He has a hard time um, resolving uh, sensitive issues. I'm, I'm not picking on the man, but there, there were some forefathers of ours who did struggle with conflict. John Adams thrived on conflict more so from a lawyer's standpoint of view because, you know, when going before a courtroom and trying a case, you have to be prepared for the unexpected. You have to be prepared for the conflict that's at stake, and you've got to be able to um, open up with a good argument, and you have to close with a good argument as well for why, for why either someone should be found guilty or why someone should be found um, innocent of the accusations brought before them. Had political partisanship increased in the time after John Adams uh, became president? Yes, it did. Most notably, I'll give you a good example here, where it really uh, had escalated to a point where um, it had not happened before, but it was probably one of those things that was just brewing with time. And the incident that I'm going to tell you all here occurred in January of 1798, just shy of two months, uh, just shy of the uh, of the one-year anniversary of when Adams became president, which he did in Mar on March 4th of 1797. But um, a partisan incident took place involving a Federalist and a Republican, or what we refer to as a Jeffersonian Republican, a.k.a. Anti-Federalist, the incident uh, obviously uh, took place during a heated debate where Congressman Roger Griswold, he's not related to uh, Clark Griswold, a.k.a. Chevy Chase from the National Lampoon movies, but 
There was a Roger Griswold, a Federalist from Connecticut, who felt it was necessary to humiliate Mr. Matthew, or I should say Congressman Matthew Lyon, a Republican from Vermont. He basically felt it was okay to humiliate Matthew Lyon by bringing up his past and point out that uh, Congressman Lyon had been an indentured servant during his youth. In other words, when I mean by indentured servant, that means that an individual had to work for about five or seven years to, um, how do you call it, to clear off any uh, or to remove any kind of um, what we might think of as criminal record on them. And if they, you know, completed their um, contract of work for about five to seven years, then they um, would no longer be considered indentured. They would be able to uh, be considered a free person and would be able to own X number of um, acres of land, maybe say like 25. But basically being an indentured servant was a form of uh, servitude that was a contract related where you worked for a number of year, X number of years until you uh, were finally um, considered um, exonerated from uh, past uh, duties that would have uh, required you to, um, to f that would have required you to f fulfill what was necessary in the contract. So, but anyways, yes, um, Roger Griswold decides that it's okay to bring up uh, Matthew Lyon's uh, past, and it obviously infuriated Lyon, Largely in part because it was probably not no one else's story to know, or that Matthew, uh, that uh, Roger Griswold didn't need to share with the rest of the governing body. So Matthew Lyon takes it upon himself, and um, he fuels the fire by spitting in Roger Griswold's face. Only for Griswold to return his anger by beating Lyon with a cane. Lyon, in return, also attacked Griswold with a um, with a poker. And what I mean by a poker is one of those devices that's used to um, break apart fire fire in a um, what do you call it? in the um, when when um, when you're doing a uh, fire for warmth in the fireplace, a fireplace poker that is. <laughs> Finally got the word out right. But yes, uh, Matthew Lyon uses a fireplace uh, poker and attacks uh, Roger Griswold. This um, incident was so bad to the point where both men were um, fighting it out on the chamber floor, rolling, kicking, screaming, where members on both sides had to break it up. And finally, I mean, this was the first uh, incident. The incident that I know um, that uh, happened, uh, and I've learned about this through documentaries, and not to get off track, but... There was one incident that I had learned a great deal about that actually occurred in 1856, uh, just leading up to the Civil War. Uh, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, he was a senator, um, a Republican, um, gave a, a speech on the Senate floor denouncing slavery, denouncing everything that the South had stood for. And it when uh, Congressman Preston Brooks of South Carolina, a Democrat, learned about what Charles Sumner had done, Sumner was on the floor debating this, um, his, taking his anger out on those whom were um, for slavery. Preston Brooks roared into the uh, Senate floor with a cane and literally uh, beat Charles Sumner to death. And 
it's a miracle that Senator Sumner even survived because uh, based upon the uh, attack, it was a very, very vicious attack. It would have probably it definitely exceeded what happened between uh, Roger Griswold and Matthew Lyon. So we have to keep in mind that uh, partisanship is nothing new. There are different degrees of just how severe partisanship was or how severe partisanship itself can be, but in 1798, with this particular incident involving uh, Congressman Roger Griswold and Matthew Lyon, it was very, um, what you call, I don't know if I'd say risque is the right word, but it was very um, ungentlemanly-like for its uh, time. Well, as for uh, John Adams, he and Alexander Hamilton, um, they do agree on some things. They each agreed that going to war with France wasn't going to resolve existing tensions. And the cabinet did agree. Okay, that that's good. It looks like now maybe we're making some progress. I don't know, though, but but for a moment we can all breathe a sigh of relief and and now realize that, hey, maybe the cabinet might be coming to their senses and, and decide that, hey, maybe... John President Adams does know what he's doing. So John Adams uh, agrees to um, an assortment or a host of new taxes based upon Hamilton's recommendation. And, you know, Hamilton's all for these new taxes because we need revenue. We still need revenue even after almost 10 years of existence as a republic. I mean, we're still paying off debts, folks. We're still paying off of existing war debts from the American Revolutionary War. So, John Adams agrees to implementing new taxes that will be geared towards strengthening our Navy, as well as improving upon existing defenses or forts. These uh, new taxes would also be imposed on um, land and houses. So think about like personal property taxes, folks, that we know of in today's time real estate taxes. Of course, they didn't have those titles then, but think of land and houses, personal property, real estate taxes. If there's one thing, though, that John Adams did not see a need for, he didn't see a need for an army just yet. In other words, the greater conflict for all things military would really to be um, on the water, and uh, for uh, fortifications. However, though, it's one thing to um, reform or improve existing defenses or forts, but who needs to maintain those forts, folks? An army. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have an army altogether, but Adams does not see a need for strengthening the army by adding more men. But somewhere down the road, there will come a time where the army will need to be reinvented, and people will have to come to the realization that calling out militias won't always be the answer to resolving uh, problems that could be seen either as large-scale or international. What legislation enacted by Federalists that got enacted by the Federalist controlled Congress in 1798 contributed to greater partisan tensions? I believe I probably did mention this um, piece of legislation from the previous podcast series that we did on um, 
Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence by Harlow Giles Unger. But it is worth mentioning here because, for one, this uh, legislation was passed when Adams was president and Jefferson vice president. And there are, um, there are going to be those who are going to oppose this legislation, and rightfully so. And it's also going to have uh, consequences that could possibly, that we would see now, is infringement upon certain personal liberties. Uh, let's find out here in just a moment. So, what legislation enacted by the Federalist-controlled Congress in 1798 contributed to greater partisan tensions? It was a series of um, measures, at least three or four, but they uh, were all combined under one title, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which sought to curtail civil liberties. Okay, when I think of civil liberties... What comes to my mind is the following, free speech, freedom of religion, uh, the right to petition, uh, the right to assemble and petition. But yeah, I think of, you know, free speech. So how could anybody be severely impacted under the Alien and Sedition Acts? Well, for starters, let's keep in mind that in the early years of America's Republic, and it's probably still true today that there are newspapers that cater to one political party, and then there are newspapers that would represent the ideals of the opposing party. Kind of like how there are interest groups today that tend to favor one political party and then go to and then support another uh, party. Like, for example, I know that the NRA, the National Rifle Association, tends to support uh, the Republican Party more whereas the Sierra Club um, tends to support the Democrats more. That's just an example uh, of the many interest groups and what kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, ideals um, and um, philosophies they represent and whom they want to um, be aligned with. But, of course, our forefathers were not um, dealing with um, interest groups back in their time, although... It might be fair to say that the newspapers of the day could have been uh, represented as the equivalent of uh, interest group, group organizations that we know now in modern-day times. So, newspaper writers to general critics, general critics of John Adams' administration, as well as Federalist Party leaders, these newspaper writers, being that of the Anti-Federalists, or Jeffersonian Republicans, were subjected to unreasonable and unfair consequences. Like what? Being fined up to $5,000 with jail sentences of five years, all in the name of publishing material or information considered in the Adams administration's eyes as being malicious? defamatory towards the government and government officials. So in other words, okay, John Smith could write an article tomorrow criticizing John Adams's administration for handling a certain affair, for how they may have handled a certain affair. Did John Smith did did John Smith mention anything about wanting to see to it that John Adams was harmed? No. Did John Smith have 
reason to believe that that a particular affair could have been handled better? Sure. Is John Smith entitled to his own opinion? Yes. But the Federalists don't see it that way. They basically feel that anything, anything that is said about the government is an automatic threat. So, yes, the Anti-Federalists are the ones that bear the brunt of legislative oppression. The law itself aimed towards silencing all critics. And also under this act, the president had the power to deport aliens, to basically send them back to their own uh, country, along with increasing the citizenship requirements from 5 to 14 years. You know, one of the qualifications for being president of the United States is that you must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. You have to be at least 35 years of age, and you have to be a natural-born citizen of the United States. I can understand how citizenship uh, requirements were increased from 5 to 14 years. And a lot of that stems um, from after the American Revolutionary War ended. Let's keep in mind that there were many exile, many individuals who chose to go to exile, to go into exile. Why? Because they were loyalists. They were loyal to king and country. Many went north to Canada. Some went to England. Some went to um, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then there were slaves who were loyal to the crown that started a new life in the Sierra Leone uh, Republic of Africa. And history has uh, has uh, shown us that not all of those who were loyal to king and country led a better life. Many died uh, broke. Many died, um, you know, as uh, being destitute and poor. So, for many, for what uh, concerns John Adams and other forefathers is that okay, if these people had left and didn't come back. We need to find a way to um, to go about ensuring that people are really serious about wanting to be an American. And if they, you know, have lived in our country for 14 years, then they have shown to us that they are not not that they are not a threat. They have shown to us that they are loyal to us, and that they made the sacrifice or the necessary sacrifices to uh, live a better life and not have to worry about oppression but of course now we're seeing oppression with this uh, with these alien and sedition acts but I do understand um, from a um, national security point with regards to citizenship being from five to 14 years Adams's biggest concern and I'll mention it here uh, momentarily the irony though is that John Adams did not request um, this legislation but he needed something in place to maintain order, given there were many French refugees whom came to America as French exiles from the French Revolution, whom he could not trust from a political standpoint. So, let's think about this, folks. Many people from France have come to America seeking asylum, and, you know, they want a better life, but yet, they don't like the fact that uh, America is not siding with their country and that they would rather side with England and have better uh, ties to England in terms of uh, maintaining um, 
better commercial ties for commerce purposes than, say, in France. So for John Adams, and this there again, this was would be due to his loyal uh, to his lawyer background. You know, for John Adams, it's one thing to um, be opposed to something; it's one thing to question something. But for Adams, if you're going to question the government, you need to have facts. You need to be able to prove right up front that this that whatever you're making your accusations about that you have solid proof it's one thing to to not like something but if you start going around making accusations that you know are false then then how can your claims have any merit so for john adams if you're going to make an accusation about the government you better have solid proof behind it it doesn't mean that maybe john adams will like your accusation but the way I'm, I see this is that for John Adams, he doesn't have time to be dealing with people who are going to make false accusations, all in the name of um, partisan politics, all in the name of uh, revenge. Uh, for John Adams, yes, these, th th these are uh, sensitive times, um, given that uh, we're, you know, we're in the post, not just so much that we're in the post-George Washington era, but in the post-Washington era, but but America is facing some uncharted waters in 1798. I mean, because we're not anywhere close to being a superpower, folks. I mean, we have made strides since our republic's uh, first founding, but we are not anywhere close to being a world power. But for John Adams, you know, he's got to do whatever it takes, though, to maintain some form of order. Thomas Jefferson, though, fiercely opposed the Alien and Sedition Acts largely because the laws severely restricted an individual or an individual's fundamental rights. And what are those fundamental rights, folks? The right to free speech, assemble, petition, and not just the right to free speech, the right to assemble and petition, but how about expressing your right to free speech, your right to assemble, meaning to gather uh, or to meet, a petition to um, sign a, um, a document, that states why you are opposed to something. So the right to to free speech, assemble, and petition, that is over anything considered unjust, unfair. That's why Thomas Jefferson opposes these acts, because he feels that the Adams administration is trampling upon the people, trampling upon everyday people whom, whom would like to have more say in their government, but can't because... They know that anything they say in uh, in opposition towards the government could result in um, in jail time and anywhere up to five thousand a five thousand dollar fine. Jefferson uh, saw the Federalists like Jacobins. Remember the Jacobins, whom were the uh, radicals who did not like the moderates, like men like Thomas Paine, who almost lost his life. Uh, the Jacobins did not like the fact that the moderates um, had were willing to work with those of the nobility and gentry status in France. So Jefferson sees the Federalists like Jacobins, whom created constant modes or atmospheres where conflict held center stage, allowing manipulation itself to prevail. So in other words, the Federalists and the Jacobins, in Jefferson's eyes, were those, leader, were, were those uh, groups that pretty much had the mentality of the following. It's our way or the highway. There's no in-between. 
did Abigail Adams, John Adams's uh, wife, take any true liking of Alexander Hamilton? No, she never trusted him. Uh, she viewed him as one whom was two-faced, being self-centered, a man whom sought ambition, but doing so without any boundaries. And how true that is. He wanted to, you know, do make a name of him for himself, and he has done that, but at the same time, he doesn't know where to stop. It just seems like he's always having to stick his nose, and in many instances, where it doesn't belong. Was John Adams himself caught in the crossfires of Alexander Hamilton's personal actions towards those within the government? Yes, um, Adams saw a side to Hamilton whom found fault with just about anyone whom stood in his way. Well, how right, how true that is. I don't recall, and, and from what I've read about Hamilton, I don't know if I really ever recall him having, he may have had decent relationships with other forefathers. I mean, he had a, I would say probably of all of our forefathers whom he probably had, probably had the strongest relationship with, it was probably none other than George Washington. Because John Adams did value what Washington had done for Hamilton via leadership posts. And these posts date back to the American Revolutionary War. So, I could see how Adams would have um, valued Hamilton, knowing that Washington not only had respect for him, but for what Washington had allowed Hamilton uh, to become through these uh, leadership posts. However, Jefferson on, began to see firsthand Adams's struggles with his own party, considering there were those whom didn't like him altogether. So Jefferson is worried about John Adams. I don't think Adams is naive, but at the same time, what Adams is struggling with is he's dealing with internal issues to where he doesn't know whom he really can trust. He doesn't know how the how members of his uh, cabinet are going to be one day after the other. A lot of fluctuation and dangerous fluctuation, to say the least. The summer of 1798 saw President and um, Mrs. Adams return north to Massachusetts, along with uh, Thomas Jefferson going back south to Monticello, and many others from Congress left Philadelphia. And why did they leave? They escaped a yellow fever outbreak. When my wife and I were in Philadelphia this past summer, um, we learned that in 1793 there had been a terrible outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia that claimed thousands and thousands of lives. Thomas Jefferson left in the nick of time, and he was still Secretary of State. Had he left a little bit later, he might not have been so fortunate. They know that probably at best, maybe close to, I don't know, maybe like 10,000 people died, which, you know, that, that's a pretty large number. We, during one of our tours, we were uh, told by the, the tour guide that, uh, that for all we knew where we were walking, there, there could have been um, scores of people buried underneath um, the church and buried underneath um, a sidewalk. So whenever we're walking somewhere along historic grounds, we never know what lies below the surface. So just keep that in mind wherever you go uh, that's of a historical significance. And it is fair to say that Adams and Jefferson 
were definitely in de desperate need of long getaways <laughs> from the political rancor and partisanship. Did Adams, upon his return to Philadelphia, look determined more so in restoring order within his administration? Yes, he wanted resolution with France, but by doing so with men like Elbridge Gerry, whom was sent directly to France, unlike Hamilton, whom wasn't. Adams, in the long run, did send an envoy, being an agent, to Paris in 1799, but he did something different. He didn't consult the cabinet. Is that a good thing? Well, remember he tried doing that the last go-around, and what did members of his cabinet do? They went to Alexander Hamilton about it. <laughs> they BMW'd about it. I I'm sure many of you are thinking, what does BMW refer to? Um, you know what? Let me just, I'll, I'll rephrase it, complain. I think that's a more, uh, more appropriate uh, term, complain. So, yeah, they... So um, John Adams is doing something different here. He's not consulting the cabinet because he knows that they that his members will complain and blow it out of proportion. But he also knew that if the decision had been opposite, it would have resulted in manipulation. So by February 18th of 1799, John Adams has advised Congress that uh, William Vans Murray will be going to France as the interim minister. And John Adams um, scores a big victory with the Republicans. They praised Adams for taking a stand against members in his own cabinet to where it sent shockwaves that had not been seen before. Along with Williams, Williams Vans Murray, William Vans Murray, Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth of the United States Supreme Court, and North Carolina Governor William Davey, were also sent as envoys to France. And not long after that, John Adams goes back to Massachusetts for seven more months. Hey, you can't blame the guy for needing getaways. I mean, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with staying, um, with getting away. And we have to keep in mind that a lot of time, that back in the time of our forefathers, they were away from... Um, government, not because they wanted to get away from politics, but they also had to think about their personal safety. That is disease outbreaks. In the summer, it was yellow fever. And then during the winter, it was like influenza or, or what was referred to in 1918 as the Spanish flu. So members of Congress have to think about their personal safety um, because if they stay around in the times when uh, yellow fever is rampant and when influenza is, members of Congress could die to where government might not function. So it's one thing to stay away, to be away from uh, Washington for, um, well, from Philadelphia for a long period of time, but it's also for personal safety reasons. Well, we're almost near the end of this uh, segment, but uh, we've got a few things to uh, to discuss, a few more things. Did a family tragedy occur in John Adams' presidency? Yes. John Adams lost um, one of his children, being his second son, Charles. Sadly, Charles died from alcoholism. He was only 29 years old. Charles, um, I learned about this years ago when watching uh, the HBO uh, series on John Adams. If any of you have not watched that, it, 
it's very well worth it, and I, and I would watch it again. Uh, the man who played John Adams was uh, Paul Giamatti. I remember a scene towards the very end of the series where he confronted his son. I don't know if it's um, 100% true based upon how it happened, but I remember in the movie series where Paul Giamatti, who played John Adams, confronted his son Charles and was so distraught by the decisions that Charles had made. And one of those bad decisions, not just so much that he had that he was uh, that he had become an alcoholic, but he had abandoned his own family and allowed his legal practice to fall into disrepair. Prior to the point, basically, this all led to John Adams disowning his son for all the improper decision makings that he had made. And um, when Adams returned back on his return back to Philadelphia, that's when he learned um, that his son had um, pretty much fallen into into a state of disarray, and eventually he died. So uh, yeah, Charles Adams died at the age of 29. Uh, John Adams disowned him, and basically just said in the, in the documentary uh, that there was nothing to forgive for his uh, for Charles's conduct. Well, uh, what's important about uh, December 14th of 1799? Uh, whom passed away unexpectedly on that date? George Washington at age 67. He died, folks. Not just two two and a half years after he left uh, the high the high office, he died. He died from what was called epiglottitis. He basically went out for a ride to tend to his um, what do you call it uh, business affairs at Mount Vernon. He came back. Um, it was very cold outside. Um, it was rain, freezing rain or snow, and his symptoms uh, deteriorated rapidly to where he. Um, contracted um, like the equivalent of a pneumonia and the doctors um, they pretty much bled him to death one of the doctors wanted to perform a tracheotomy what we call a tracheotomy now but um, but but um, historians now know that Washington had pretty much said something like you know just let me die in peace I've uh, suffered you know enough I just want to you know I don't want to die in misery but the bottom line is that he uh, sadly died at the age of 67. And on December 26th of 1799, President Adams declared this date as an official day of mourning. The funeral service lasted five hours, primarily through eulogies. And after the funeral, Adams went back to business, but nothing new regarding France had surfaced, and, would not ch and this would not change until prior to the fall of 1800, John Adams uh, shifted his focus on what the future, on what the future itself um, had in store, being um, the start of a new um, century, and not just the start of a new century, but an election year, 1800. Well, that's it for this uh, podcast session. I look forward to being back on the air again next time with all of you, my faithful 101 um, anchor podcast listeners. Thank you for your time. As always, you guys are great um, supporters. Uh, continue to get the word out to those whom are not familiar with Anchor, because once you get started, uh, the opportunities are limitless. It's free, and uh, the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you for your time again, and have a good evening, and uh, stay safe wherever you all may live in the world. Good night for now.